0: Hey there, I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we're the Verti guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo Comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer Preacher. And today we are looking at Hellblazer issues eight and nine. Where did we leave off last with John Constantine? Well, somebody was giving John Constantine shit, so he did what he always does: run away. Jump out of a train. <laughs> So he's having some problems with some godly folk, the Resurrection Crusaders. And some of the opposites, <laughs> The Damnation Army. Yeah. Which are Nurgle's secret army of Satanists that are just kind of wreaking havoc to spread despair and terror among the mortal animals. Fighting a guerrilla war on all human life. Yeah, so... He's been trying to solve both of those problems, and he went to see his friend Richie to get some information about computers, and he didn't even get Richie out of the computers, and then he was taking the train back. He was met by his contingent of ghosts who are mad at him for getting them killed, and decided to get out of that conversation by jumping off of a moving train. Yeah. Which is not good for your health. No, That's how that guy in Charade died. Right. Charles Voss. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Even if Lambert is what it says on the marriage license. So, (laughs) we're not actually going to come back to John for a little bit here. It's not going to be entirely clear where he is for a moment. No, we start at Resurrection Crusade headquarters in Glastonbury. But But before that, we start with a cover by Dave McKeon of some sort of snapshots of headstones and a figure with red IV lines connected to him yeah he's a, a sort of screaming or or at least very pained figure yeah with some red lines coming out of him i assume this to be constant time but we're getting ahead of ourselves there yeah this Other. fucking comic book has some amazing covers and i think this one in particular is like this is gonna be a horror comic you're gonna have fun Come on and buy it. (laughs) You're You're right, and by you're going to have fun, I mean it's going to be fucking awful. As for the rest of the credits, this comic is like the ones we've been covering up to this point, written by Jamie Delano. The interior art is by John Ridgway, and this issue he's joined by Alfredo Alcala. So, as I said, we pick up in Glastonbury, a place blessed in myth and legend, we are told. Yeah, Glastonbury is under a fresh new coat of snow, and I like this turn of phrase. Now draped in chilly virgin sheets. Oh yeah, that is a good turn of phrase. And the narration tells us, basically, mythology or legend links Glastonbury with Joseph of Arimathea, who was the disciple who took responsibility for the burial of Jesus in the New Testament. Right. Now a new crusader castle stands sentinel over this English holy land, the narration tells us, as we see that this castle belongs to the Resurrection Crusade. Yeah, and we see Zed here, and she is not the girl we once knew. Her hair is entirely white now, and she has a, a notably sort of passive, handmaiden kind of attitude to her. Yes, home again, her great adventure finished, as if she'd never been away. She's substantially changed by her experiences here and she thinks, was there ever a woman called Zed? Yeah, she is the Mary now. And we turn the page to find ourselves on a two-page spread that looks like a fucking two-page spread. (laughs) This layout works for you? (laughs) Yeah, we have the art divided right in half and a very symmetrical layout here, which I think works very well of the Resurrection Crusade's sort of main guy, who I guess we found out is Zed's father, right? That's right. And he's preaching, and this is intercut with scenes of Zed, you know, being re-baptized or whatever, doing her holy crowd surfing bit. Yeah, so they lead her in and baptize her, and we get this narration. At least in Glastonbury, she doesn't have to choose. Here, it's she who's chosen. And the... Resurrection Crusade preacher goes on about how these are the end times. We see a number of newspapers showing like terrible news and off crimes, but we also see, for example, protests in favor of gay rights. Yeah, and animal lib. And whoever made that sign knew that there was going to be another sign in front of it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Just three quarters of it's blocked, but lib begins right after the other sign. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so the Resurrection Crusaders are deeply uncomfortable with the state of the world right now. And they have a plan to show God that they are ready for his return. A plan which relies on the Mary. Right, and immediately after the sort of holy religious part of her ceremony, they uh, bring her into a medical suite where they're going to be performing some kind of surgery on her. Yeah, she's actually crowd-surfed into this vast door, which is then revealed to be an operating theater. Very effective reveal there. And I kind of want to note here, like, the Resurrection Crusaders are definitely paranoid assholes. We saw them attack Raymond Raymond last week. But at the same time, they're not wrong that the world is infiltrated by agents of Satan. We know that's true, too. Right, because of the Damnation Army. As much as these guys are psycho-religious pricks, they are fighting an actual war against an actual enemy. Right, and this is beginning to give us the understanding of why John Constantine doesn't really like to take either side. So Zed is being prepared for surgery here. It didn't occur to me until like the second or third time that I read this, but is this a surgery perhaps to restore her virginity? Oh man, I have no idea. I don't even want to think about that. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. It's left entirely to implication here, anyway. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing, and I just assumed it was something we were going to find out about later, not something we had to conjecture. We're told that her mental alignment is complete and the final adjustment is surgical. And the doctor asks her father to leave it to them. That's actually where we get the title, go now and leave her to our intensive care. Which is probably not how he would say it, because intensive care is a different thing than the surgical ward. Yeah. In any case, yuck. (laughs) Yeah, it's a yucky scene. And and that's what I I found so scary, too, is just, like, when she's being passed through this door at the head of this congregation, the build-up there, and then the reveal of what's on the other side is very smooth. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, medical horror is a theme that horror movies and TV shows and comics have come back to time and again, and there's a reason for it. It's very effective. Yeah, and the juxtaposition of religious fanaticism with unwelcome medical procedure is definitely, definitely a scary little niche there. And we're going to come back to medical horror in a minute. Yeah, when we find John Constantine in a padded cell. And he sort of looks not unlike Zed here, the sort of pacified Mary version of Zed. Yeah, he's in a hospital gown. She's in some kind of one-piece white gown. And his blonde hair seems much paler than normal here. Almost white. Well, yeah, and they both have, you know, her normally very frizzy hair is combed all the way down. And his yeah. normally very ostentatious blonde hair is also, like, flat. and. Yeah. Does John look much younger than usual in this sequence to you? You know, I think he does, but that might just be a side effect of the fact that the art is trying to portray him as more, like, innocent and passive. Yeah. So some cops come in and pull John out of the cell. They drag him to a cellar, and they handcuff him to a pipe, and they are preparing to torture him for what he did to that kid in Newcastle. Yeah, they call him a pervert, and they talk to him as if he's... Some kind of sex offender or child killer. Right. Clearly, he knows more about the reason why than we do. Right. One points out that he's got a daughter the same age as the kid in Newcastle. And the other says, We can't do what you did to her. We're human. But we can sure as hell make you suffer. Suddenly, though, John wakes up somewhere else. Yeah. It seems that that was just a nightmare. But the man in a coat and tie waiting for him here makes the same accusation. Yeah, John refers to this guy as Piggy, but he is actually a mental health professional by the name of Dr. Huntoon. We saw this guy before, in the pages of Sandman. He was attending to John D at Arkham Asylum. Oh, uh, I did not make that connection at all. That's pretty cool. Although that means we actually see him later, not before. That's true, since this was published earlier. But yeah, he also brings up the girl in Newcastle and what John did to her. And on the last panel of this page, we see what looks like an ordinary old lady, although I suspect it's supposed to be a little girl. Um, (laughs) That's mean. (laughs) But an ordinary old lady who transforms into a guardian of the universe and then Uh. into some kind of ghost demon. (laughs) Some kind of blue-skinned, horrible demon, yes. Oh, man. She turns into Gambit there for a minute. She's about to yell at Kyle Rayner for drinking in the middle of the day. Well, someone should. (laughs) So he asks if John remembers what he did to the girl in Newcastle, and John says, of course I remember. We start to get a bit of an explanation of the Newcastle incident here. As John says, the girl was possessed by demons. His group tried to help her but fouled it up. Gary Lester lost his bottle. We remember from the Hunger Arc that Gary had a bottle that could contain demons. Yeah, and a habit of opening it at the wrong times. Yeah, he has impulse control issues under the best of circumstances. John tried to hold the demon in a binding circle, but the circle was broken and it escaped. He says it killed the girl, and Huntoon says killed is an understatement, I think. Yeah, and as we're hearing all this, we get... A very dramatic two page spread of John undergoing electroshock therapy. We got his sprawled figure covering almost all of two pages with electricity coursing through it. Right. It's Huntun. almost like he touched a microphone or something. Ooh, right. Huntsune seems to think that John has delusions, paranoid delusions, that he's forced to fight evil and therefore that they have to subject him to electroshock therapy, and we have this double-page spread of John in agony. And then he wakes up for the third time in yet another place. Yeah, and this is also our third two-page spread of the issue. He's in the hospital again, and he recalls the end of last issue when he jumped off the train. And in this sequence, we see somebody seeming to pick him up to rescue him after his injury. It's still a wit. Yeah, and that is Swamp Thing. It's going to be necessary to note that John Constantine is appearing in the pages of Swamp Thing, which is, of course, where he made his debut, but he's appearing in Swamp Thing in this era and is sort of being moved about the board as suits the plot of both comics. (laughs) Yeah, apparently. I was under the impression that the weet factory was in the UK, and therefore the train that John jumped off of was as well. Now I understand that Swamp Thing's powers include manifesting more or less anywhere there are plants, so he could rescue John after that. Right, yeah, that's true. Certainly there's no reason to think that, I, I mean, weet is is definitely an English cereal brand, so, yeah. so that factory is probably in the UK. And anyway, you know, Britain's an island. So, if he was taking a train to Glastonbury, then he wasn't in America. <laughs> <laughs> right. Unless he's supposed to have disappeared to America between the pages of that comic, of issue number seven. So, John is in traction. He's barely able to move. And he notices that there's a cop in the room. Uh oh. Why the old Bill camped outside my door? Things don't look too rosy. <laughs> I love that. He calls the cop the old Bill. And then we see a doctor coming down the hallway, and quietly, quietly enough that John doesn't seem to notice, the doctor kills the officer. Yeah, seemingly without the cop ever waking up. Right, the officer's asleep on the job. And John makes the unwise decision to play dead, because he's not up to visitors. I think he thinks this is just going to be another cop or medical professional to...
1: Yeah, he figures it's a
0: doctor or nurse, and he can just pretend to be asleep and I'll go away. Yeah, but it's actually Nurgle who (laughs) calls his bluff in the best way possible. (laughs) Remember, whenever anybody's anybody's pretending to be asleep and you want to call their bluff, just lick them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so John is touched by something which he thinks is probably a damp cloth. (laughs) Until it tries to slip into his mouth and give him the tongue. Oh my god. It is Nurgle, he's at the foot of the bed. His tongue is three, four feet long, so he's able to do that. Yeah, and he's given him quite a licking. Ah, Constantine, I'm sorry, did I startle you? Oh my god. I was just going to take your temperature. Shall we call it a slip of the tongue? This is just so ridiculously delightfully <laughs> evil. Nurgle is hammy as shit, and John wastes no time in his usual response to overwhelming danger, which is to snark at it. I know the health service is in bad shape, but recruiting demon doctors must be an all-time low. John points out that he doesn't kiss until they've been introduced, to which Nurgle replies, You mean you don't remember me? I'm hurt. We're old acquaintances. He reminds John of the time that he called him on the phone back in issue number three and invited him to join the Damnation Army. Uh, isn't that issue number six? Oh, you're right. Number six. Yeah, so, anyway, Nurgle goes on to give John the hard sell, and says, your cooperation is not requested, but required. Yeah, he wants something, and he's not asking. And there's a bit of business here, as they have their conversation, that he plucks out an IV, which is providing John with a blood transfusion, and just uh, pops that in his mouth, just has himself some blood. Yeah, not to skip ahead too much, but they they have several pages of conversation here, Constantine and Nurgle. In fact, it's like half a comic book. Yeah, they're definitely spending time on it. And I think they do a really good job with the art and with the little bits of business that, that Nurgle does of making it visually interesting, even though it's just, you know, two characters, one of whom is completely immobilized, talking for like ten pages. Yeah. He also eats Constantine's flowers. <laughs> Jerk. Yeah. The way that John Ridgway draws Nurgle is it's not like a typical sort of comic book demon character design. You know, he doesn't look cool. He just looks horrific. So Nurgle wants John's help to beat the Resurrection Crusaders. And at this point, he reveals that in the previous issue, they did indeed kill Raymon when they beat him. Yeah, which comes as a surprise to John and to this reader as well. He also reveals that they've got Zed. And when John refuses to work for Nurgle, Nurgle suggests that the maternity ward is just down the stairs and he's tempted to go down for a snack. Yeah, first he tries using John's hatred for the Resurrection Crusaders and the Tongues of Fire to recruit him to his side. Then he turns to this, you know, fairly brazen form of blackmail. John agrees to listen, and Nurgle explains that basically light and dark have been in balance for most of the history of the world, but now there's a chance that balance may shift. John quotes the W.B. Yeats poem, The Second Coming, which will be familiar to most listeners. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The poem tends to work its way into most pop culture depicting the apocalypse. Yeah, and here it's representing, I think, a bit of John's despair and his ineffectualness as well. So John asks Nurgle for the details rather rudely, and Nurgle interestingly replies, I recall you were an insolent child. I gave you a lesson once in manners. Yeah, this is alluding once again to the past between them that we do not yet know. Right. John doesn't really seem to know what he means by that, either. It's at this point that Nurgle gives us a bit of mythology. He explains that John was involved in a brujeria incident, and the incident resulted in a civil war in Hell. And while Hell is distracted, Heaven has created the Resurrection Crusaders to scoop up more than a half share of the souls on Earth. Yeah, the Resurrection Crusaders are Heaven's opportunistic response to the discord in Hell. And this is something that Hellblazer will come back to again and again, but it sort of portrays, like, this war between Heaven and Hell as one where both sides are undesirable to, like, the Earth and humanity. Right. John is an agent of neutrality. And we learn that there has been a prophecy that Zed, the Mary, is to give birth to the next messiah. Right. She's called the Mary because she's going to give birth to God. It's happening again, God born of woman. Nurgle had a plan to kill Zed before that could happen. John screwed it up. That was back in issue number six, six Extreme Prejudice, with Iron Fist the Avenger, the giant racist monster that he had made. <laughs> yeah. Good times. That's <laughs> for some not so good time. <laughs> Yeah, it's at this point that Nurgle plucks one of the cords suspending John's broken leg and he cries out in pain, which Nurgle says gives him an idea for a new musical instrument. Just so, the worst. A project for calmer times, perhaps. <laughs> like I said, they're giving Nurgle plenty of, like, entertainingly evil things to do to make this conversation more visually interesting. <laughs> The scene has a lot of tension because John is in genuine danger from Nurgle. At the same time, Nurgle is almost comically evil. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of visually interesting, we also, as they talk about the Civil War in Hell, get a huge sort of montage of that with plenty of, you know, demon-y type shit going on. Yeah. Armies of demons marching against each other. And the army of the Resurrection Crusaders in attendance listening to a speaker at a podium who's giving a sort of Nazi-like salute. Right. So John agrees to help stop the birth of God in exchange, basically, for getting him out of this hospital bed. Second, I'm no good to man or beast smashed up in a hospital bed. You'll have to fix me up. They're in a hurry, so Nurgle decides to heal John the fastest way that he can. He opens up the blood transfusion IV that he had previously been drinking from, and spills a bit of his own blood inside, and reconnects it to Constantine. I like this warning that he gives him, too. Be warned, betray me and you die at least a hundred million times. Right. Now this is the demon blood. John's just gotten the transfusion of demon blood from Nurgle. That's a pretty huge plot point that they're still going to be talking about a long way down the road. Yeah. Yeah, so we got gross... Demonic healing here, and then we turn the page to a two page spread of John crying out in intense pain as the blood does its thing. Yeah, it's just a two page spread to show us that the demon power healing is not at all fun. Right. Nurgle disappears, promising to meet with John when it's done. It's interesting that this demon blood is such a major plot point of the whole series. And it really comes about because, you know, John didn't want to wait for his hospital stay to be over. His hospital stay that was only necessitated in the first place by his almost comically stupid decision to jump off a train. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. These are seemingly minor events that lead into really big plot points. One wonders at the extent to which there was a desire to move pieces into the right place to set up the demon blood. Yeah, I, I mean... Or I, maybe the demon blood is just a minor plot point that later our writers wanted to work with. Could be, could be. In, in any case, I, I, think it's, I think it's effective in a sort of, like, humorously Joss Whedon kind of way. Where it's like, this is a little bit silly, but it's also the plot and we're going with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? So John busts out of the hospital, finds that he's stronger and faster than he used to be. Yeah, he feels great. And so, of course, he feels like shit about it. Not for the first time, I savor the liberating tang of pure evil. Why are you so down on yourself, John (laughs) Constantine? Don't jump off trains. (laughs) What's the uh, moral of the story, so to speak? Well, also, don't, like, accept demon blood, I guess. Unlike the New York arc of Preacher, the story has a moral. (laughs) Yeah, don't jump off trains. Wait for the train to come to a complete stop. By the time he gets back to town, John is feeling mortal again, and he's not really sure how to go about the rescue. So he buys himself a smoke. Yep, so that concludes what I think was a pretty good issue of Hellblazer. Yeah, that was a fun one. Nurgle conversation with John. Tense, but also entertaining. Yeah, plus we get a lot of plot. You know, we get recap of, of plot that's already happened. We get hints about things that are to come, including the biggest hints we've seen yet about the Newcastle incident. Yeah. And we have a great setup for a confrontation between Janna and the Tongues of Flame. Yeah, I think if you're going to do a whole issue of conversation, essentially, this is the way to do it. This is a blueprint for a well-done version of that. Yeah, they really, just with the various activities and background flashes and stuff, make several pages of conversation really entertaining to read. So, that brings us to Hellblazer number nine, Shot to Hell, written by Jamie Delano, with art by John Ridgway and Alfredo Alcala. And it's got a cover by Dave McKeon. This one shows a wincing John with his hand up against a brick ceiling, while a number of people look on like, man, what's that guy's problem? Yeah, uh, he seems to be clutching his head in pain. This is not one of my favorite covers. Very dark, not really clear what is going on in it. Well, I like the cover better than the issue. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so here we find John resuming his standard John Constantine trouble procedure. Yeah, which is to mope about and avoid the problem. He's procrastinating and he's also smoking and drinking. Well, yeah, and he's also in Gotham City. It's worth noting, which, why is he in Gotham City? The answer, again, is because he's been appearing in Swamp Thing at the same time. And, you know, the setup to this is issues of Swamp Thing that we're not going to be covering, but suffice it to say that the writers of Swamp Thing need him where they need him. Yeah, I have to admit, I completely missed that element until you pointed out to me that there's a newspaper three or four pages in ...that says Gotham on it. I thought this whole thing took place in a shitty part of London. Well, and, and to further confuse issues, we have Mad Hetty here. Right, so we'll come to that in just a moment. John is enjoying his newfound health by trying to destroy it, as is his way. He's wandering around Gotham City. He sees a couple arguing near a building that's being demolished. Seems to be wandering in circles around this building being demolished. That or half of Gotham's coming down today and uh and and i'm not sure what's happening on this page because he sees these two arguing and then a moment later there's a dead guy hanging out of the side of a car yeah it, it looks as though so the only dialogue in this page is the man from this arguing couple just yelling bitch at the woman over and over again and he produces a knife but just in the nick of time the wrecking ball strikes a building and a load of bricks falls down on this guy's head, killing him before he can kill the, the woman, I think. Um, oh, that's an interpretation. It looked like there were wounds in his chest, so I thought, well, honestly, the first time I read this, I thought John had shot him, but that doesn't seem like what he would do here at all. But maybe she stabbed him? I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, my interpretation is that the bricks hit the dude. But in any case, it looks to me like John was thinking about intervening Probably about to fail to intervene, and then didn't have to. He's he's just too depressed to do something about it. Right. Which brings us to Mad Hetty. Yeah. Hey, Raggedy Man. i seen a spaceman in the automat. He gave me a gold pretzel, but I lost. (laughs) I think this is the first uh, appearance of Mad Hetty. No, it's not. She was in number one-ish. Oh, was she? I thought we'd only seen her before in Sandman. You know what? You're right. He did get advice from Mad Hedy that he needed to check out a case, but that was when the Sandman was looking for him back in Sandman number three. Right, which hasn't been published yet. Right, that hasn't happened. So, yeah, there's a homeless woman, possibly Mad Hedy, although it doesn't necessarily have to be. I'm not sure that the information she gives him is as useful as information she's given him on other occasions. <laughs> yeah. He walks past a prostitute who yells at him for ignoring her. It looks like the Phantom Stranger here is also trying to get his attention. Where? Oh, wow, right behind that prostitute is the Phantom Stranger, or a guy who decided to go get a prostitute while dressed in really old clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why she would be like yelling at John for walking past her and ignoring her if she's got another customer vying for her attention. He's on his way out to the opera, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair enough. John comes into a bar, and, you know, we're going page by page here, but he spends a lot of time moping in this issue. Yeah, moping, drinking too much. And this is, by the way, the page where you see the newspaper that reveals that he's in Gotham City. Yes, and he actually asked for the newspaper only to see the date. It turns out this is John Constantine's 35th birthday. Right, John Constantine has birthdays. Yeah, and he also really looks like hell. I had written he looks like hell in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I think we're maybe seeing some Alfredo Alcala influence. These pages don't look exactly like the John Ridgway art that we've come to expect. Speaking of people who don't look exactly like you'd expect, the ghosts show up. John starts singing 15 men on a dead man's chest to try to drown out the ghosts. Oh, that's why they call him a limey in this scene, because he's not in London. Yeah, yeah, they, they call him... Yeah, so that must have been confusing when you thought that they were all limeys too. Yeah, well, okay, so the woman's running out the door and she tries to get into the car, right? She tries to get into the passenger side. That's one of the things that made me think this was the UK. Back in the stabbing brick scene. Oh. Oh, yeah, I see. I don't see a steering wheel there, though. No. So, yeah, this nun ghost yells at him for tasting Satan's heady brew, and he replies, Tasted it, you bloody stupid nun. It's flowing in my veins. And you know what? I don't give a toss. Yeah, he really gives the ghosts here a piece of his mind, all while looking absolutely insane to the other patrons of the bar, who of course can't see them. Yeah, he points out that, given his lifestyle, he is likely to end up on a bed in a cancer ward. And he says, The cards are bloody rubbish. I'm cashing in my chips. All despite taking the demon blood so he could save Zed, now he's ready to give up, it seems. Yeah, yeah, I I think part of it is just Constantine's normal, like, problem-avoidiness and tendency towards self-despair. But part of it is also, like, events that have happened to him in the pages of Swamp Thing between this issue and the last one. That's a fair assumption. I think that he doesn't like the price that he's paid for the healing that he got from Nurgle, and I also think he doesn't like what he's about to have to do. The bartender throws him out of the bar, and he is pursued by a slightly friendlier than usual ghost. It's Ray Mond. Unlike most of the ghosts who just kind of yell at him for being a bad guy, Ray is at least sort of trying to cheer him up. Yeah, he's relating to him a little bit telling him not to destroy himself, not to let self-pity poison him. Yeah, he tells John that when he found out he had AIDS, he felt alone and unclean, and he thinks that John's self-pity and and self-loathing has given him a form of psychic AIDS. Yeah, when he says the demon blood gave you a sort of psychic AIDS, that's really a line I could have done without. Does that feel like unnecessary edginess to you, like just stretching to, to have that brazen phrase in it? Well, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say that it feels to me like unnecessary edginess. I do think it's pretty insensitive. Okay. Given that the AIDS crisis was, was really raging at this time. You know, it's a serious, serious issue. And I have no problem with Ray using his life experience to relate to what John is going through, even though Ray's life experience is very realistic, and John's is very fantastical. I have no problem with that, but just the phrase, like, a demon blood transfusion gave you psychic aids seems really insensitive to me. (laughs) Yeah, well, it does seem like it should be a sample at the beginning of a metal song. (laughs) So anyway, so Ray tries to remind John that he has love in his life, that he has Zed to live for. Right. She loves you, and don't tell me you don't care for her. To which John replies, Shut up! Right. John goes back to his rented room. He drinks and smokes some more, and he uses a glass to asphyxiate a cockroach with his cigarette, all while monologuing his self-pity. Yeah, he's just sitting around feeling sorry for himself when some ratty old clothes rise up off the ground and chase him out into the street. Yeah, and this is sort of a vague play on words. He was complaining just half a page earlier about how he has a heap of clothes so dirty they could walk away, and then his clothes literally become animated and start chasing him around the room. Yeah. Yeah, this is like as much a metaphor as an actual thing that's happening, and indeed, given John's state of mind, I'm not actually sure that it's a thing that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Some people see John running away without being able to see the clothes and comment, man, I sure wouldn't want that guy's DTs. That's a reference to delirium tremens, which is like severe withdrawal symptoms that alcoholics get. Right, right. So John hides out for a while in the building being wrecked, but then he is attacked by an oil slick that rises up. Yeah, and he has to to halfway burn himself to death. To, uh, to get rid of it. Yeah, sets it on fire with a lighter and almost kills himself. Walks off for a while and finds a bunch of newspapers chasing him down the street. Yeah, he just can't catch a break. Here's where we get sort of the metaphorical, the metaphorical setting forth of what is going on with him. I walk, a swollen agony of feet. Pain keeps me moving, and fear. Once fear has got your scent, it's never far behind. Forcing itself into the mundane, making it strange and terrible. Yeah, I want to point out here that one of these newspapers that's chasing him seems to have a headline about the Swamp Thing. Hmm, you're right. Does the Swamp Thing live in Slaughter Swamp? The same swamp where, uh, not Booster Gold, um, Cyrus Gold. Solomon Grundy. Solomon Grundy? Born on a Monday. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure where Swamp Thing generally takes place. He has the ability to travel through the root system or whatever and materialize pretty much anywhere on the planet. And you know what, I remember now that he's in Louisiana, not in Gotham, normally. Well, he's from Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so he gets away from the newspapers by hiding in a bank, and a bunch of money comes up out of the drawers, and takes on human form and starts chasing him around. It's a good problem to have. Yeah, and here, actually, the people in the bank do react to the money... They claim that it's just blowing in the wind, but they are at least aware that the money is moving around the bank. And this is a pretty funny way of dealing with the monster, as the bank patrons fall on the money man and rip it to pieces. Yeah, struggling like starving dogs over the crass bounty of a dying god. Now, in this scene, John seems to think that the ghost that's chasing him is the ghost that scares him the most. Not sure who that is. I had written down that I thought it was Richie. He's weak and desperate to trail me to this dead place, but of all the abandoned ghosts that haunt me, he's the one that scares me the most. Yeah, that's weird. Never really spelled out. No. Don is actually tempted to grab up some of the money too, but he's too afraid. He makes his way back to the dilapidated building and sits down on the old wrecked couch. He smokes his last cigarette and waits to die. It's the end of the line. Yeah, he's just completely given up at this point. I'm not sure if he expects Nurgle to kill him for going back on their deal, or if he expects the falling building to kill him at this point. But he's... I, Yeah, I got the impression he was waiting for the wrecking ball. Right. But he is visited by one last ghost. It is the ghost of John himself. He's wearing a pretty nice suit, just like in the first issue. Yeah, this is a much more hale and dapper looking John Constantine compared to the drunken lout that we've been following for most of this issue. His appearance has really just gone downhill for the last nine. Well, it's had its ups and downs. At the end of the last issue, he looked pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. I don't know when he finds time to watch that trench coat. So this ghost of himself kind of talks him out of his self-pity and tells him, you know, you know what needs to be done. Get on with it. You could crack this thing, you know, if you wanted to. Use your noodle, chum. Think about the prophecy and the girl. I know you like to think about the girl. So John calls himself a bastard, gets up and leaves, and a moment later the wrecking ball comes through where he was sitting. Yeah, and he is back to form on the top of the next page, shaving off his five o'clock shadow. He's looking dapper again. He hatches a plan and he flies to Blighty. <laughs> I assume is blast Oh, it could be London. The old familiar rush is lifting me. I'm back on a winning streak. He's worried about being arrested on account of various crimes and Richie's disappearance, but when a cop stops him in the airport, it's actually just to hand over the duty-free cigarettes he had bought and forgotten about. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I really like how this page sort of paints an equivalency between, like, being back to England and being his old self again. Remember, Gotham City is not a place where people go to be happy. (laughs) I don't know, there's at least one Gotham citizen who's happy all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that guy. (laughs) That fucking dude. We go back to Glastonbury, where we find Zed staring at the barbed wire fence surrounding the RC compound. She's She's sort of aimlessly wandering the grounds... She can't escape because of all the defenses that they've put in place, but she doesn't really want to, either. Yeah, she thinks how she misses John, but it wouldn't have worked out. She was never the woman he knew as Zed. And then, sure enough, there he is. There's a good line here where she says, Just remember him fondly, and hope he fares well when the New Jerusalem conquers Hell. (laughs) From behind a tree, Hi, kid! Well, actually, he's coming from inside a tree. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he sort of pops out from a crack in the trunk of this tree. I'm not sure if he's just sort of found an existing tunnel, or if the Swamp Thing helped him out by creating a path there. Well, I don't think or it's if he that. I like, climbed over the tree on some branches that stuck over the fence. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I just sort of assumed that he had like taken up a stealthy position and was watching her. I think Swamp Thing has lost track of him at this point, hmm. but... He says he's here to rescue her, but she doesn't want to leave. Yeah, she feels like she has to play her role in the Resurrection Crusaders' plans. Huh, so I play Fall Guy to a starring role in The Son of Man Part 2. She says she'll always love him, and he replies, I'll always love you too. They embrace, and she whispers, John, and he says... I'd like to. Just once then, she replies. Yes, he says. One last time, she says, and then you'll go. And so they make love one more time. Like vines, our spirits intertwine alive in every vibrant leaf. There's some purple prose on this page, but it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. There's also a, a sort of real foreboding sense to the eroticism on display here as... We, the readers, and John know what he's actually doing. Or or we find out in a couple of pages if we hadn't quite put it together yet. But he leaves while she's asleep. Sure sign I must be on the mend. I'm already back playing the old traitor's game. He gets back to London, telling himself the whole way he has no regrets, but he knows that he's taken something away from Zed that she can never get back and that she would probably kill him if she knew about it. Yeah. No angel is ever going to come where there's now demon blood, which is to say, into the vessel of the Mary. Right. So Nurgle tainted John, and John tainted Zed. And you sort of wonder if that's what Nurgle had in mind all along. John seems to think it is, yeah, that he knew that John wouldn't kill Mary. And so this is what he had in mind. John notes here, incidentally, that. This deals with the Resurrection Crusaders, but not the Damnation Army. They hold all the cards. Not good. Yeah, unless the prophecy is fulfilled by some neutralizing force. He kind of idly thinks here about trying to get Swamp Thing to father a neutral messiah. (laughs) Yeah, and just as he's thinking about Swamp Thing... Talk of the devil. The tobacco in his cigarettes takes the form of the Swamp Thing himself. About bloody time, you showed up. But did you have to use me, duty Freeze? They were the only smokes I got. Don't provoke me, Constantine. I'm tired of chasing you. No more tricks. This is urgent. This sounds very menacing, but this is coming from a two-foot-tall swamp thing on John's coffee table. Yeah, he looks a little bit like Chewbacca. (laughs) He's usually drawn as green, but because he's made of tobacco this time, I guess... He's brown, and John makes the best of the situation by plucking a bit of Swamp Thing off of his tobacco body, rolling it, and smoking it. Yeah, I wonder why he has papers on hand if he just bought a bunch of cigarettes, but whatever. That's a valid question. We did see a shot earlier of papers sort of suspended in Swamp Thing's body, so maybe he just plucked one. Oh, yeah, maybe he grabbed one of the papers that that the cigarettes came out of, or that the tobacco came out of. Anyway, Swamp Thing is pretty mad at Constantine, but Constantine says he has a plan. So, so, specifically he's mad at Constantine for joking when the lives of his entire species, Swamp Thing's entire species, are at stake. Don't get cross, I've got it all under control. Listen, give us a light, and I'll tell you my plan. I think you're going to like it. Yeah, so, how about that issue? So, where we were left at the end of Intensive Care, was that John had to do something about the Mary and the imminent birth of God? Not, you know, imminent in the sense that she was already pregnant, of course. But this issue gets us there, and it didn't really need to be as long of a walk as it was. Yeah, it it definitely didn't. He could totally have not thrown himself off a train. Well, I'm not complaining about- about that throwing himself off a train, which I think we've given John enough of a drumming about (laughs) But yeah, he spends most of this issue walking around being depressed about the fact that he has to do something about this, and then, you know, does something in the last five pages. It's a very John Constantine way to approach the problem. Well, yeah, it's a real draggy issue. Not a ton happens. A lot of what does happen is pretty confusing. You know, we weren't a hundred percent sure if this took place in Gotham City or not. We weren't a hundred percent sure if the Phantom Stranger shows up. <laughs> yeah, I understand that they're dealing with the need to have him in a couple of comics at the same time. There's nothing wrong with a little narration that gives us some purple prose about how Gotham City is a shit place to be to set up that that's where he is. Yeah. Yeah, you wonder how many tourists from overseas it gets. <laughs> I mean, it's a port. <laughs> yeah, I guess a lot of ninjas go there. <laughs> I'm not really sure when Gotham total shithole became a thing. Obviously, it already has by the time of this issue. But there was a time when it was, you know, when it was all of New York, not just the worst part of New York at 11 p.m. <laughs> I, I can't remember the quote now, but somebody had this great line: "Gotham is is the worst alley in New York City at 11:59 p.m." Well, I think. The publication of The Dark Knight Returns is probably a big part of... I mean, obviously, Dark Knight Returns portrays a sort of alternate timeline future Gotham, uh, where things have gotten much, much worse. But nonetheless, the tone of that book informed basically everything Batman that's been published ever since. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, I didn't think that this was a great issue to return to the matter at hand. We have sort of wrapped up a story arc here. I guess it really depends on what comes up in future issues, and at this point I have not read them. It seems like there's got to be a reaction to the action that John has taken in this issue. This still feels like part of an ongoing story arc to me. You know, the Resurrection Crusade is still out there, unaware as yet that their plan has been foiled. The Damnation Army is still out there, and whatever John's history with Nurgle is, we haven't found that out yet either. Yeah, so we're still building to a couple of pretty big reveals about John's history. But before we return to that story, there's going to be a Swamp Thing story arc that is of pressing importance. Yeah, John's gotten dragged into Swamp Thing to the extent that we feel compelled to cover what happens in the next couple of issues of Swamp Thing. That's what we'll be talking about in our next Hellblazer show. Yeah, that's right. This was Hellblazer issues 8 and 9. In our next Hellblazer episode, we're actually going to be covering Swamp Thing issues 76 and 77. Next week, we are going to cover one of my favorite arcs in all of Preacher. Probably my favorite, absolute. Be here next week as we find out the root of Jesse Custer's problems, which is all in the family. Hey, if you like our show, head to vertiguys.blueberry.com. that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, for more episodes and show notes on every episode. You can also get in touch with us via at on Twitter or vertiguise at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.